Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist, band leader, composer, and educator Jeff Coffin. Over the course of our conversation, Jeff spoke with me from his home of Nashville, Tennessee, about a journey in music that has taken him all over the world, delighting fans with his saxophone playing. He is on the heels of a new 2015 CD that has a great name, something we all want to know about, Inside of the Outside. It involves time in Cuba, and it's a great story. He's learned from many great teachers over his life at institutions like the University of New Hampshire and the University of North Texas. He was a longtime member of Bella Fleck and the Flecktones from 97 to 2010, and he's a part of the Dave Matthews Band, along with other projects. So, along with the music and being an educator, he's also a great photographer. He's a cool cat, and he is a creative force. Get to know Jeff and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thanks for taking some time out for me today. Oh, man, likewise. Thank you. Right on. Let me, let me start off here, and, and I know you're a busy man. You always got stuff going on, but from your words, give me kind of a brief snapshot of what's going on in your world lately. Boy, where to start on that? Um, <laughs> you know, for the beginning of the year, I've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of education work. I'm, I'm teaching in Vanderbilt University now, also, and uh, so I've been teaching a bunch. I've been doing a bunch of gigs, some stuff with the Mutet. I've been doing uh, some solo project stuff. I've been engineering some, also. I've been recording uh, my own project in my own studio. You know, it's different than the Mutet stuff. It's it's just tunes that I've written over the years that I've never recorded and, and have wanted to start recording. So I've been experimenting a lot, basically. I've been doing uh, solo uh, appearances at jazz festivals with college and high school bands. I've been putting out projects on my record label. I've written a couple of books that I finished up this year. One's a saxophone pedagogy book. One is a play-along uh, with the Mutet. Uh, so I'm in the process of, of you know, starting to, to get those to publishers also and, and to look at, uh, you know, different possibilities of, of publishing um, and distribution. So, it's, you know, kind of a combination of, of business stuff and also of, uh, you know, musically very creative stuff. So kind of a bit of a balance of those things, I would say, but it's it's all... It's all based in creativity, and it's all stuff that I'm trying to stay creative no matter the situation. Just did a gig last night with uh, Jennifer Hartswick opening up for this group called Ghost Note, which uh, includes some, some of the uh, guys that have played with Snarky Puppy in the past. And I started the National Jazz Composers Collective, and we have a we have a gig this Friday that's bringing in Ken Vandermark also and, and his group Made to Break and the National School of the Arts, getting ready for International Jazz Day. And then, of course, I have... So the Dave Matthews tour coming up in three weeks. Wow. Three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> coming up quick. Yeah. Coming up quick. Time flies, man. That's you for sure. Mean. You know, your last album, the most recent one, I love the title of it. It's the essence of what we all want to figure out, inside of the outside. Yeah. Uh-huh. So <laughs> let me let me ask you this. What? It's a great album. What went into this album, and how do you feel about it? I feel really, really great about it. It's You know, I never really thought about doing a big band record. A number of years ago, I I started doing workshops and clinics. This is why I was with the Flectones. Back in the early 2000s, I guess I started doing these. And, uh, and I remember going to 
a clinic one time. I think it was Bobby Shue, actually, or Bob Minter. I can't remember which. Uh, it was one of those two guys. And they had they were doing their own tunes. You know, they had their own big band arrangements of their own tunes. And so I took a chance and had two big band arrangements made up by a um, uh, a friend of mine, Brett Savacek, who um, I had known from North Texas, and he was a brilliant arranger. And So I said, okay, let's get these two tunes done. And, and so I got them published at the University of Northern Colorado Press. And it was great. So I could go to a school, and they would buy those two charts, and we would perform them together, and usually a couple other things as well. And so I was making a little extra money on the side. You know, it wasn't much, but I was, I was like, okay, well, this is another source of income. And uh, and I get to go in and I get to do my tunes with these students. And so over the years, I've had a bunch of those done. I have, I think, 13 or 14 of my tunes arranged for big band by various arrangers. So when I do these these concerts, I have them buy these tunes. And, and, you know, we go in, we talk about, you know, the level of the band, what kind of program we want to have, et cetera. So with Caleb's band, the Crescent Super Band, I've been working with them for well over 15 years at this point. And uh, Caleb has become a, a very, very close friend of mine. So, you know, we, we talked about this idea of doing a project together and just sort of sort of in passing, you know. And he said, well, you know, we should we should record some stuff so that, you know, you have good recordings of these tunes. I said, yeah, so that sounds like a cool idea. And, and so he told me that the band had been invited to go to Cuba. It's the best high school band in the world, by the way. It's just awesome on so many levels. So he told me he'd been the band had been invited to go to Cuba, and I said, "Oh, I said, well, man, I said you should take me along." And uh, you know, I was joking, but you know, it's always been a dream of mine to go to Cuba. And he said, "He said, really?" He says, "Man, he says, would you really want to go?" And I said, "Are you kidding me?" I said, "Absolutely." I said, "I said, are you serious on any level?" He says, "Yeah." He says, "Let's do it." And like that, I was going to Cuba. <laughs> nice. So we we talked some more about it, and he said, you know, he said, one of the concerts we can do, let's do all of your tunes. Let's do this project also. You know, after we get back, let's let's do this project. And I said, well, that sounds fantastic. I said, but what about this? And I said, what if, you know, while we're in Cuba, we actually start the project? Like, what if we kind of think even bigger, and let's record one day in Cuba while we're down there? And uh, so we started scheming. We talked to a few different people about, you know, the logistics of it, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we went to Cuba, we took a day in Abdallah Studios. We recorded the first two tunes on the record, The Inside of the Outside and Move Your Rug, uh, with some Cuban guests. And, and, and this is funny also, man. So when, so when we're done with the recording, packing up for the day, we realize that we hadn't thought ahead and brought a hard drive for the files. And we're thinking, oh, my God, like, there's no Internet here. There's no way that we're going to get a hard drive at this time of night. There's no way that they're going to be able to send these files via the Internet. And I said, oh, I said, hang on a second. I said, I have an iPod Classic in my bag that has plenty of room on it. And partition it and put the files on that. Yeah. And so that's what we did. That's how we got the files out of Cuba. We put it on my iPod Classic uh, and took them out that way. We uh, we decided that, that we would finish the project uh, last summer during one of the breaks on the Dave Matthews tour. So I flew out to Utah. We finished it. In the meantime, Caleb and I had decided to do a Kickstarter for it. So we raised $25,000 with Kickstarter. And we had also talked to a number of guests, all the guys that are on there. And uh, and they had confirmed that, that they would indeed play on it. So we left space for them. Send stuff around and, and 
you know, had to gently prod every now and again to go, hey, you know, we're kind of on the deadline here, buddy. And, uh, you know, can, yeah. you know, can, can you get it done? But people were, were so cool about, you know, working with us on it because they also know Caleb and they're friends of mine. And, and, uh, we said, look, you know, it's, it's not a charity thing for you guys. We want to pay you. Well, we can't pay you a lot, but you, we want you to know that the proceeds of this project all go back to the National School of Music in Havana, form of gear, um, for these students. And one of the reasons for that is that while we were down there, I know it's a long story, uh, while we were down there in Cuba, okay. we did a, we did a cultural exchange with the National School of Music with these high school age students. And it was the highlight of the trip for all of us. You know, it was, it was amazing to witness and to watch these students collaborate. They had performed for us individually, like solo pieces. They spoke in English. They, they described their tunes. They told us their aspirations and their dreams. Uh, they had everything memorized. And the Crescent Super Band went upstairs to another room and performed for them. And by the second tune, a bunch of them had their instruments out, and they were like, man, we want to sit in. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> oh, right on. Come on, you know? Yeah. And so the room was packed. Like, like, like people were peering in the windows. Students were peering in the windows. You know, through all the chaperones and the teachers. Man, there wasn't a dry eye in the place, honestly. Wow. Like, it was, it was such a powerful moment. And one that hit us in a way that, that we hadn't expected. You know, so again, it was really the highlight of the trip for us. And we decided, man, let's do something for these guys because they don't really have much of anything there. And that's where the proceeds will all go. It's, you know, as soon as, as things open up a little bit more and we're able to, you know, use these companies to get the material there, then, you know, that's what's going to happen. That's a great story, man. That really is. Um, oh, thank you. Let me, let me ask you this. How does a kid from Dexter, Maine, Picking up a sax in the fifth grade, become who you are today. How did that music bug, that itch for jazz, get in your soul? You know, I, I had great teachers along the way. I, I think that's a big part of it. They really fanned the flames. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways music chose me. I think that's what happens with musicians is that music chooses us sometimes more than we choose it not realizing the pull that it has on us, you know, the way that it affects us emotionally and spiritually. I mean, I, I think about it a lot, man, quite honestly. I think, wow, man, the saxophone has taken me around the world. And, and honestly, I'm grateful every day, you know, for, you know, the things that I have. You know, I'm, I'm standing outside my house right now, and I'm thinking, wow, man, the saxophone and music has has brought me this, to be able to live a life that, has meaning and passion and you know spirit to it and that I get to to work with students and that I get to play with incredible musicians and and uh, be creative it's you know it's incredible to me it's incredible to me and you know I never knew it when I started that it would be like this I, I knew that I knew pretty early that I wanted to play because of the way it made me feel and it still makes me feel that way you know I still love it I'm still you know I'm just finding my creative niche right now, you know, I feel. And, and I'm deep in it, and, and I want to stay deep in it. I want to be surrounded by people <clears throat> who are deep in it, who are interested in being creative. You know, I want to do projects like, like I just played uh, last year on that Snarky Puppy family dinner, too. Uh, my friend Carlos Malta came up from Brazil to play on it also. It, you know, we have a similar spirit. You know, we want to be around creative people and creative situations, and... Uh, you know, that's that's what I'm looking for in my life. In your music career, you kind of traverse different genres of music, not only jazz, mm -hmm. obviously, with 
Dave Matthews and Hollis Fleck. But let me go to in your childhood. What jazz album or albums did you spend that blew your mind? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't get into to quote unquote jazz until probably around high school. The town of Dexter, Maine, which is a very small town in the middle of our Maine, in the middle of Maine. You know, like for example, our nearest movie theater was 40 miles away. We were pretty isolated. So the stuff that I would hear on the radio was limited to pop music, basically. My dad had a few jazz records. He had some Dave Rubeck, so I, I, you know, I heard Paul Desmond every now and then. I remember a particular Eddie Harris record called Exodus to Jazz that I really liked a lot. And there were a couple of big band things, but it wasn't like I was hearing Sonny or, or Johnny Griffin or Coltrane or any of those guys. You know, it wasn't music that was, that was in my dad's repertoire of listening, and it wasn't music that that my director at the time, you know, really brought to us. But, you know, we, we were playing Buddy Rich charts and big band. And so I remember hearing, um, uh, it was probably Don Menza. And so I was always attracted to a particular sound. Like I liked a big, husky, fairly concentrated sound on the tenor. So I think there was a variety of stuff. But I remember the, the some of the first stuff that I started listening to, you know, was in high school when I heard Charlie Parker. Like somebody told me about Bird and I was like, Bird, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. You know, so the stuff I gravitated towards though was that, you know, that big tenor sound. You know, Train and Sonny Rollins, and I remember kind of like the first heavily aesthetic experience I had with the music. Honestly, you know, like in in a way that profoundly affected who I am and what I do was uh, Coltrane solo on Bye Bye Blackbird, and that didn't occur until I got to college. Yeah. And uh, so I had been listening to this music, Monk and Dolphy and all these guys. And, and, you know, and I was cool with it. But, like, when that when that hit me, I just kind of went, like, wow, man. Like, what was that? Like, what was that feeling? And where did that come from? But, you know, I've, I've always been interested in a lot of different styles of music. So I never really limited myself to just listening to one style. So, I, you know, I would play along with Led Zeppelin records or, you know, whatever pop records we had also during the time. And I was always heavily influenced by soul vocalists, you know, Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye, Gladys Knight, Aretha, of course, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I would try to emulate that stuff on the instrument more so than the jazz stuff. So I've always been, you know, really attracted to melody in particular. So let me ask you this. It's very clear that the classroom for you in your life has been playing live gigs, but you have formal education at the University of New Hampshire and the great University of North Texas. What did you learn about music in those formal environments? I would say almost everything, quite honestly. I learned how to funnel the passion that I have. I learned about uh, self-discipline. I learned how to listen. I learned how to practice. I learned how to share music with other people. I learned about uh, developing relationships in a band situation with other people. I learned about leadership. I learned about how to teach and how not to teach. I learned about time management. I learned about problem solving. Uh, you know, a lot about how to crack open a problem. You know, how to look at something and go, okay, well, how do I solve this? Or how do I get through this? I remember waking up in the middle of the night one night and, and realizing how to play a minor 2-5. I was like, oh, nice. that's where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> And I was so excited that I couldn't wait to get up the next day. <laughs> like, oh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> nice. That I, that I teach 
is is to share this information with other students also you know to to encourage them and to advocate for them and to to say look you know like you don't have to be the best i've never been the best i will never be the best but i will work harder than anybody you know to do what i do and I'm, like i remember a long time ago you know, I used to play hockey, and I was a big Boston Bruins fan. Uh, my dad, we were talking about Terry O'Reilly, who played for the Bruins. Uh, and Terry O'Reilly was not the most gifted. He wasn't like Bobby Orr, you know. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't the most gifted guy on the ice. But my dad always said, you know, he said, that guy works harder than everybody else. He says that's why he's, he said he's awkward. He's not a great skater. He's not a great shooter. And uh, he said, but he works harder than everybody else on the team. That's why he's made it. You know, yeah. there's a little bit of talent, but it's the hard work. And so I think that that's, that's one of the things for me is, like, I don't mind putting in the time. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a workaholic, and I don't mind putting in the time and, and uh, you know, and really helping some of these students to, you know, realize that hard work is a big part of, of what we do. It's, you've got to work, man. You have to practice. You have to work on fundamentals, and uh, you have to listen. You know, they say, well, you know, how do you make it as a musician? I'm like, well, first of all, you never make it as a musician. You know, yeah. I said, I'm working harder now than I've ever worked in my life. And I said, I have great gigs. I said, I don't have to do this. I said, but I am. You know, I said, I am not resting on, on what I've done in the past. I'm looking forward to the future. I tell them, I said, look, you know, if, if you want to be a musician, being able to play your butt off, that's a given. That's where it starts. I said, you know, your, your talent will get you hired the first time. I said, but who you are as a person, I said, that'll get you hired the second time and the third time and the fourth time. So, you know, being able to talk to them about what it takes to do what we do out here is, is important because I'm doing it. You know, I've been doing it for years, and, and uh, it's something that I can share with students, and it's an important part of what I do. One of the sidebars, or actually one of the biggest parts of your career is you've had such successful musical relationships, and with fellow Fleck and the Fleck Tones, you hooked up in 97, that goes yeah. to 2010. When you think back on all those years with with that band, how do you feel? What what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was it was brilliant. It was a brilliant experience, and uh, you know those guys are are family to me. You know, Future Man still plays with the Mutet. You know, we all we all stay in in close touch. You know, I miss them a lot. I miss playing with those guys because it was such a part of who I was and, and who I've become now also. You know, people ask me my influences, and, and I say, you know, my most profound influences have been the people that I've played with over the years. You know, you spend 14 years with, with three other musicians playing night after night, uh, traveling and being in a bus together and listening and, and you know, becoming brothers and family, and, and it's profound. I would say that, that you know, by no means is, is that, you know, musical relationship over. I mean, we have the rest of our lives to make music together. And it will happen. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure of that. And then in 2008, you hook up with Dave Matthews. What was that mm -hmm. like? Getting used to Bella Fleck and that and th that kind of vibe that you had. And then getting mm -hmm. into, obviously, I mean, they are on a very grand worldwide stage. What was that experience like to be with them? It was a little surreal, you know, when when I got the call I got the call from Flectone's management and said, you know, Leroy's been really hurt in this accident. He's going to recover, but they're in the middle of a tour. You know, he can't play. He broke his ribs, functional lung, broke his clavicle and scapula. They want to know if you can sub for him for two or three months until he's better. 
And I said, sure. I said, you know, I said, I have to cancel a bunch of stuff. I said, but when do they need me? And he said, right away. I said, well, what's right away? And he says, the next gig's tomorrow. And I was in New York. My gear was in Nashville and the gig was in Charlotte. I was able to um, get my gear to Charlotte. I flew down. Um, Rashawn came in early. We went over the charts. And and, and it worked. And it was seamless. And we we were having a ball and, and everything was cool. And then Roy passed. And, and, you know, it was kind of like, oh, my God, man. Like, to be in the middle of that, it was surreal. I mean, that's the only way to describe it, quite honestly. But to witness the power of music as a healing force was remarkable. To witness them going through that. And people say, oh, man, that must have been really hard for you. And I was like, for me? You know, like, okay, it was it was a difficult situation. This is what we do as musicians. But I said, for them, I said, losing a brother like that. You know, losing losing a member of your family in the middle of a tour as, you know, from one day to the next. He was supposed to come to the gig the next night in L.A., you know, during his recovery. You know, I mean, you, you, you can't, there's no words for something like that. So, you know, I just powered through as, as best I could and, and, you know, brought whatever I could to them. You know, I just said, look, man, like, if, if you need to lean on anything that I can bring to the table, lean on it. You know, in in my role is is a supportive role in that situation, and that became very apparent, especially in those particular trying times. Well, and you've been all over the music map, as I kind of touched on earlier on. Branford Marsalis, mm-hmm. Van Morrison, Garth Brooks. How do you keep your edge? How do you take your brain from jazz and go into country or go into pop rock? What what what's going on in your head? What kind of levels do you have to go to to be there? Oh, it's it's all music to me, you know. I'm just I'm trying to serve. I'm trying to serve the music. I always tell the students that too. I say we're in the service industry. We serve the music first, and then we serve the musicians we're playing with. Then we serve the audience. I said, so you're at least fourth on the list. So you know, get used to it. <laughs> I said, but but you know, we get served by serving. You know, like like about a week and a half ago, a couple weeks ago now, I guess. In one week, I, I was working with, I, I recorded on a choir record that that uh, a friend of mine was working on in Nashville. He brought down this African percussion troupe called Heritage OP uh, from New York. I then recorded them on some of my projects. I did a session with Steven Tyler from Arrowsmith. The next day, I was, I was performing and recording with some Indian and Pakistani musicians called the Dosti, D-O-S-P-I, ensemble you know so this was in the span of like four or five days i was doing all this stuff and i was like man this exemplifies music city this is what it's about you know this is the diversity that exists here now um it was really exciting you know to to be able to do those things and and then like yesterday i was in the studio doing recording it was something for the princess and the frog it's like some kind of broadway musical something or other that that we had to record you know, so it's it's a lot of really diverse stuff. And, and, and again, you know, for me, my musical interests lie in a lot of different places. So I enjoy doing a lot of different things. And as, as long as I'm able to listen, that's that's the key, is as long as I'm able to listen, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Of all the places that you could have picked, and a lot of people pick one of the coasts, you picked Nashville. And I think you just mm-hmm. answered why, that the, the diversity... Just, yeah. So you, you love it down there, huh? I do. You know, I've been here since 91, 
and Nashville has become the city that I always hoped it would be. Yeah. And uh, when I first moved here, I was sort of like, wow, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, it's, it's a beautiful place to live and the people are great. And I was talking to my friend Barry Green yesterday. He's the, the top call trombone player here in town and he's been a great friend for many years. We were talking about the community of musicians that are here. And I said, it's, it's just, so incredible that there's so many amazing people here who are so supportive of all the different things that we get to do. And he's one of those guys also, you know, he's, he's been in the studios for 25 plus years and played on thousands of thousands of records. You know, I had him over recording on my project the other day. He's just, he's still so creative and still searching. And, you know, I just love it, man. There's so many people here that are like that and, and people are moving here by the droves. It's, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. You know, things have worked out really well with your career, not only seeing the world and playing with so many musicians, but you've gotten a lot of awards, including a Grammy. Let me ask you this. This isn't a question about your favorite award, but what award did you get that just kind of blindsided? You were like, wow, that's cool. You know, it's interesting, man. I, I think it's the one that, that I didn't receive that meant the most to me. <laughs> <laughs> When when I first joined the Flectones, we were we were nominated for a Grammy. Um, I ended up winning three with them. Um, but the first time we were nominated, um, we didn't win. And uh, I remember being there, and I was so excited, man. To I was at the Grammy. It was like this is like unbelievable. I'm in L.A. I'm freaking out here, you know. And and I realized that like as you know as the category is coming up and you know it's getting ready to be announced, and I'm and I'm like a little kid. I'm so nervous, you know. And, and we didn't win. And for, like, for the briefest second, I felt disappointed. But then I went, oh, right, this isn't why I'm doing this. And, and it was interesting, like, just sort of observing my own reaction with that. Because I was like, oh, right, right, this is just a reminder that this is not why I'm doing this. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I was really grateful for that, for not winning. You know, and it was great. It was super exciting to win. You know, every time it was just sort of like, wow, man, I can't believe it. But I've, I've never, you know, I've never looked for the awards. Uh, you know, years ago I was awarded a, a, a grant from the NEA uh, to study with Joe Lovano, which was super exciting at the time. I mean, that was something that, you know, was really huge for me. And, and you know, Joe and I have stayed in touch over the years. And, you know, to be able to study with him and to, to you know, have him as, as sort of a mentor also in, in some ways, you know, made a big difference to me as a young musician. But I always come back to to, you know, not winning the Grammy as as a as kind of a pivotal moment for me, quite honestly. Let me ask you this: You've had a lot of great teachers. You obviously mentioned Joe Lovano, and you've mentioned others. That that gives a lot of good voices in your head over your life. But what advice has always kind of resonated as something that's kind of risen to the top for you as far as teachers? Well, you know, I I, I look at you know a lot of you know, my friends as teachers also, um, one in particular, Dave Pietro, who uh, lives up in New York, he teaches now full-time at NYU, and Dave and I have known each other since we were, you know, we went to music camp together in high school. Uh, we were from different cities, and we met, and, and we just hit it off, and he's been, you know, one of one of my most profound mentors over the years. He's come, I always tell people he's, he's the older brother I never wanted. <laughs> 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 different advice that I've I've gotten along the years from people and, and you know, I remember one time he asked me, he said, Do you trust in the process of life? 
And I had never thought about that before. And and I realized that I do. You know, for better or worse, man, I, I, I do trust in that. You know, that's that's been something that's that's carried me through over the years also. You know, I used to have little little sayings up in my studio and, and you know, one of the things that I tell students, I said, you know, don't confuse activity with progress. You know, when we think about the time that we spend on an instrument and, you know, when we're practicing, are we actually practicing or are we just regurgitating what we already know how to do? So I think about those things. I think about these little tidbits. I used to have a, a, a book that I would write different quotations in and, you know, be able to, to kind of look at that and, and go, oh, well, this is something that I really need to think about. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, I think more than anything, those couple of things have, you know, really made a big difference to me. But, you know, I, I think encouragement is a big part of it. You know, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of clinics in my day. I've seen a lot of teachers. And one of the things for me is that, you know, I've always, come at education from a more uh, a more encouraging direction, I guess I would say. You know, I've yeah. seen I've seen clinicians be really negative. I've heard horror stories from directors. And I always thought like that's not that's not going to be the way that I teach. I'm not going to be a negative teacher. And I think it's really served me well. And I think that it's in particular that it's served the students well. So, you know, you steal from the best, man. You know, the things that, that that you teach and the things that you talk about, you steal from the best. And, and uh, so I've, I've tried to do that over the years. You know, the people that resonate with me, I try to take those those ideas. And, you know, whether it's from a book or whether it's from, you know, a conversation, there was a book that I read years ago called Illusions by Richard Bach that profoundly changed, you know, what I do and how I do it. And, and there's a bunch of quotes in the book, and, and, and one of the things in particular, it's, it's, it's a lovely little book, and it's about maybe 125, 150 pages long. One of the quotes in there, it says, you're never given a wish without also being given the power to make it come true. Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. You may have to work for it, however. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and I was like, oh, okay. I don't mind hard work. So, you know, I used, I used to keep these things sort of, you know, sort of close at hand and, and you know, and I share them with, with other students also, you know, because of how meaningful it was to me. You know, try to reach them any way you can, basically. So your title is basically saxophonist, band leader, composer, and educator, but you're also a photographer. Talk to me about how that works. Talk to me about how that works into your creative approach to life. Well, it's, you know, it's it's very similar to how I approach music. It's very compositional for me. I'm looking for the spirit of the moment, basically. I'm looking for a story that's involved. I'm looking for a creative moment. You know, when I, when I take a photo, my hope is that when somebody sees that photograph, that they'll sort of use their imagination to think about what came before it and what came after it. You know, that there's a mystery in there, that there's an intrigue, that it that it um, invokes art. When I first started getting into it, you know, I didn't I didn't know that I would get into it on the level that I did. It was actually through macro photography that I really got deep in and that's when it really changed my life. Sony had given us cameras when we were with the flectones because we were like, Okay, you know, 
some of us are doing photography, and we'd like to be able to take some of the pictures for the record. So Sony gave us cameras, and one day I, I and, and it was a Sony 717 was what it was, and one day I ducked it into a flower and just took a picture, not thinking anything of it, and I saw the picture, and I went, oh, my God, what is this? Yeah. So suddenly you see, you know, the inside of a flower blown up on a computer screen, and I hadn't ever thought about macro photography before, and I was in, man. Like I remember the I remember the photograph that it was, and I was like, this is unbelievable. And you know, you hear stories about the Buddha holding up a flower, someone becoming enlightened. And I'm not saying I'm enlightened on any on any level. I'm just saying that, you know, somebody held up a flower. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, absolutely. And it changed everything for me. You know, it it uh, it helped me um, recognize and realize the balance of nature, the importance of that balance and, and you know, not only in nature but in our own lives that we're trying to emulate that and, and to see the male and the female energies represented was was quite profound for me, honestly. Let me ask you this. It's a very simple question. But why do you love jazz? Well I don't I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> <laughs> What comes to mind is infinite possibilities. It's it's so many styles of music. Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think it's infinite possibilities, and, and yeah. that has to do with the artistic part of it, as as well as the spiritual. You know, the connections that we make between one another, the the fellowship that that exists between musicians. I think those are the things that you know bring me back to improvisational music every day. It's hard to even know what that word means anymore you know the word jazz but it's um to me it's improvisational music and it's profoundly moving at its core it's there's a mystery to it that i really dig that you know you don't really know what you're going to get each time it's sort of it's sort of like a um gumball machines but you know you, you like you would put in a quarter and you like you you know you might get a decoder ring or you might get a sticker you might get this or that sure. Sure. And, uh, so there's a surprise element to it too. Yeah. That uh, that I really love, and so it keeps drawing me back. But yeah, infinite possibilities. It's a great answer. Let me ask you this: Everybody has a version of who you are. Your family does. Your friends do. Sure. Your business associates, the fans you play for. But who do you mm -hmm. think you are? In your mind, who do you think you are in this world? You know, that's the first person who was asking that. Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try to be subtle. I don't want to come out and say, who do you think you are? <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting. I have thought about that, and, and, and I've thought about that through through some of Charles Mingus's writings where he says we are three. We are the person who we think we are. We're the person <clears throat> who other people perceive us as. And in reality, we're a combination of those two. I don't know if that's Jungian philosophy. I, I think that maybe it is. but I, I learned about it through Charles Mingus. I, you know, I don't I don't know sometimes. I try to be a good person. I try to treat people well. I still have a lot to learn, though. But I, I try to be kind, you know, and, and, and I, I try to lead with kindness. You know, and, and again, there's a lot to be learned in that as well. But I was raised by my parents to be a good person, to uh, treat others with respect, and, and, and to ask a lot of questions also. So I don't know, man. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, a, a very normal person trying to get through every day just like everybody else. But, again, I come back to that idea of creativity and, and fostering that creativity and 
in trying to grow and, and, and expand as a human being, to learn from others and to, you know, to, to learn to accept the process that I'm in on a daily basis. And that's, you know, that's a struggle sometimes. Jeff, that was my final question. Thank you for giving me a part of your, your story and your essence. You're definitely a force of creativity. I appreciate your time, man. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate your time, too, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Nashville, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jeff for his time, his warmth, and his story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Jazz.